Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast dedicated to the growth, development, and advancement in three core areas in your life. Teamwork, leadership, and culture, or what we call the TLC. Hi, my name is Greg Gregory, certified speaking professional, founder, creator, and host of the Teamwork Advantage. And we are in our fifth season, just about to wrap things up this year as we get ready for our sixth season. And we've had some amazing guests on helping us focus on so many different areas. So if this is your first time listening, pop back, listen to some older episodes. The information that we've had through some of our previous guests have been outstanding. So we invite you to listen in and uh, just listen to some of the people like Nicole Malakowski, the first female uh, Thunderbird pilot in U.S. history. We've also had people from the U.K. giving us their ideas on take of leadership in the United Kingdom. We've had people in the musicians industry. We've had athletes on board. So we're not just about one particular area. And the good news is, and I'm sure Dr. Shepard will share this with us today. What we're talking about does not just work at work. A lot of what we talk about works in our personal lives. And those are the things we look for and find those golden nuggets. So let's get started today. I want to introduce you to our guest. Dr. Quentin Shepard is currently the superintendent at Victoria Independent School District in Victoria, Texas, on the Gulf Coast, down near the Houston area. Um, and he's the author of The Secret to Transformational Leadership. We're going to find out about that because there's been a lot of stuff written on transformational leadership. Right. He focuses on the practice of compassionate leadership, which today I think is absolutely critical, and expressing vulnerability. We're going to dive deep into that. And believes that's why radical transparency works. Those are words I didn't think I'd ever put together, radical and transparency. So that's going to be interesting. Uh, Dr. Shepard brings inspiration, hope, and valuable insights about how we can transform the way we lead school districts by modifying our approach, but not just school districts. So don't think it's just about that. This is about your business life, your individual teams all the way through, even with some of the most basic leadership practices. So let's give a teamwork advantage. Welcome to Dr. Quentin Shepard. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on five seasons and heading into your sixth. Yeah. And we've been downloaded in 59 countries. So we're really excited about all that. So that's fantastic. Well, thank you for having me. So we're excited about this. So I'd like to help out with folks here, find out a little bit about you, where you got started. We talked a little bit offline before, but tell everybody your little story. I mean, you didn't wake up all of a sudden one day and people that are watching right now, if you're looking at you, Yes, he's very young to be a superintendent in schools, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about that as well. But you didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a superintendent. You know, coming from no. the Midwest, what happened? How did it go? No, I was uh, born and raised on a, on a working farm. Uh, my brothers and I, we were nothing but brothers on a working farm and miles and miles and miles away from civilization. And uh, I sort of had in my mind that I was going to grow up to be a farmer, which I guess in some respects I, I did um, instead of growing animals or crops it's about growing people and organizations uh, mm -hmm. but uh but my mom was a teacher and they uh, one of my favorite sayings of, of all time is that little boys grow up to do what their mothers want them to do but they do it in a way their fathers would have done it 
which was absolutely the truth for me. My mom was a teacher. And so somewhere deep down, I knew I was meant to be a teacher. And so after I, you know, enrolled in college, got out of college, I, uh, my first teaching job was as a pre-K through 12th grade music teacher, tiny little school. Let's so I got to see again. all the kids. Say that again, folks. Listen to this. Pre-K, Pre-K through, 12th through 12th grade, 12th grade music yeah. teacher. That's right. It was wow. everything every day. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was exhausting. The two schools, there was two schools, there was an elementary and a high school, they were literally across the street from each other. So I'd start in one school and then halfway through the day, I go over to the other school and, and finish my day. Um, but you know what, the, the great part about that was I got to see every, every age of child at every age of development, mm-hmm. every stage of development. And so um, when it and came- I'm sure you saw I, some of those develop too. <laughs> Absolutely, I did. Over the course of the, you know, the, the years that I taught, I watched kids move from elementary into junior high or junior high into high school. And so when it came time to, you know, go after my first principalship, um, I think everything was 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 possible for me just because, you know, I dealt with with kids at, at all levels and more importantly, dealt with their parents. And so the first uh, the first the first uh, gig as an administrator that I had was as an elementary principal in a different in a different district school in Illinois. And uh, so I did that for a little bit and then had the opportunity to move into the high school principalship in that same district. Uh, so I did that for a little bit and was having some success and having all kinds of fun. And uh, before I knew it, uh, the board was asking me if I was ready to be the superintendent of that district. And I ended up uh, finding myself in the seat of the superintendency at 27 years old and feeling totally unqualified and unfit uh, to do the job. And uh, that really set me on this journey that ultimately became this book. And it became the evolution of my leadership. Because when you first start as a leader, and I think specifically, at least for me, I can speak to my reality um, as a young, young leader, immature, if you will, leader at 20, 27 years old, you, you tend to play by the rules as they're handed down to you. Right. Because you don't know how else to play. Right. And so I kind of had in my mind what a superintendent was supposed to do. I'd been taught what a superintendent was supposed to do. And it's in this very classical style of leadership that's dependent on hierarchies and power structures and so on and so forth. But as I was doing the job in, in my heart, I didn't feel like I was doing it the way I wanted to be doing it. And I would find that I was literally in a, in a juxtaposition between this is how you should run a bond campaign versus how my heart was telling me I wanted to lead a bond campaign. And it took me a better part of five, almost 10 years before I could start to develop some language around what I, what I saw to be the inadequacy of leadership as it was handed down to me. And, and, and so then, you know, five years in, in that particular school district, that was Amboy in central Illinois. And I got called up to Chicago. I had Hunter recruited me to just outside of Chicago, Skokie. It's the first suburb you drive into as you head Northwest out of town and a further development of even then, I was not calling it compassionate leadership, but I knew of this concept transformational leadership, and that seemed to be about as close as, as anything to what it was that I was trying to do. Um, and continuing to grow as a leader and experiment with things that worked and things that didn't work. Uh, and, then, and then through that experience, I really started to, to juxtapose transactional versus transformational. And I saw so many parallels in other types of leadership. Um, so you could go to Heifetz and Linsky and they talk about technical versus adaptive leadership, right? And you could go to Clayton Christensen from the business world and he talks about complex versus complicated and juxtapose that. And in my mind, 
I started to realize that all of these concepts are sort of interrelated, but nobody's talked about the actual language that supports this type of leadership. And uh, so then I, I started speaking on it and talking about it more and writing articles here and there. Uh, did a little bit more when I was in Iowa than I was headhunted to, to Iowa to serve there for a while. And then got and then got really serious while I was there and um, eventually headhunted here to Victoria, Texas, and had been writing a lot of articles, speaking a lot about it. And um, thankfully, the pandemic came along, so I had a chance to write a book just like everybody else and try to get... Uh, you know, some mm -hmm. thoughts on, on the page. And well, that's how the podcast got started. The pandemic came along. Yeah, so. for sure. That's for a lot of us. <laughs> right. So would you say there is a lot of similarities between being a principal, a superintendent, and being a manager or vice president in business? Oh, I, I believe that there's a, a strong, a strong uh, connection, correlation, okay. for sure. And how, how do you define that? How do you pull those two together? Well, I think that um, as you as as you rise in any, and I hesitate to use the word rise, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with um, uh, the structure that we all kind of know okay. and and use the word hierarchy. So as you move through the hierarchy of leadership, whether it's in my experience, whether it's corporate or uh, public, uh, the nature of the problems change. In that the the folks on the front line or at the bottom bottom of the hierarchy. They are solving complicated problems every day. Complicated problems, and I use that word very specifically, complicated problems have one right answer and there's one right way to do things. And complicated um, work, is it's, it's okay to talk about that as transactional and, and judgmental. Right. Like we should judge this work. We need to judge the quality of the work. There's only one way to do this particular transaction if you're in the corporate space, right? In the, on the frontline uh, work. But those comp that complicated work, the further you work your way up the hierarchy, you start dealing less and less with complicated issues and you start dealing more and more with complex issues. Now, complex issues, complex problems, complex opportunities. These are fascinating because there is no one right answer. And the, you, if, I've had several folks ask me when I give lectures or I start talking about this, um, folks will ask me, well, how do you know if a, if a problem is complex or not? And, and my response is, imagine just tossing this problem out into a room full of people. And the level of disagreement in that room is actually a pretty good indicator of the level of complexity of the problem that you're facing. Mm -hmm. And I and I find that as you work your way into that the seat of the CEO, a good portion of your time, if you're surrounded by great people, a good portion of your time, you're dealing with um, almost exclusively with the complex. There's very little about my day to day work that is complicated. And when I talk to other CEOs from the business or corporate world, it's the exact same experience for them. They're dealing with these massively complex problems that don't that don't have one right answer. Okay. So then let's talk about transformational leadership, how you, how you look at that, right? So yeah. your, book, your book is called The Secret to Transformational Leadership. So yeah. is there one secret? Is there a silver <laughs> bullet? And then, but we really wanna get into, that's defining what transformational leadership is. And I wanna get really in depth to the vulnerability side of things. 
Absolutely. Um, so the secret to transformational leadership, I think that was in my mind, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a joke because everybody writes about transformational leadership. It seems like there's a lot of books, there's a lot of literature about transformational leadership. But if you go to any of that literature and, and really read it through from like the how to manual, like how do I actually put this into place, you realize that they're pretty, pretty scant for the most part. It's, um, I wouldn't say that it's exclusively theoretically theoretical, but it is largely theoretical that we want to be in this transformational space. We want to take either organizations or people from one place into another, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that there's there's a couple of pivot points that I write about in the book that are really, really important. And one is this notion of vulnerability, and, and I want to come back to that. But I think even um, even more equally important, if not more important, is the, the conversation that you and I are having right now, I am very closed and knowing, right? You're asking some questions and we're having a conversation, but I have an expertise and I'm being honored as a human being. That's a wonderful thing. It, it feels very, very good, but I am closed-minded right now and I know the answers that I'm giving you, right? And the cool part is that's not bad. That's just the way we are as human beings. And we want to honor closed and knowing. When I ask you questions, I'm, I'm begging you to be closed to knowing and share with me your, your what's in your mind. But- it's Interesting you're using the term closed and knowing. I, I would look at it more open and knowing and wanting to give, but okay. But now here's where I'm going to take you. That's exactly right. So the movement is from closed and knowing to open and learning. Okay. And open and learning is transformational. So right now I'm not in a transformational space, but you might be. See, mm -hmm. because I'm closed and knowing, but you might be open and learning. Yeah. And so the dialogue that we're going to have as I ask you questions and as we get into a real conversation, an honest and genuine and authentic conversation, I'm going to pivot from closed and knowing to open and learning. Closed and knowing when I'm talking about the stuff that I know, open and learning when I'm listening. And learning from you and vice versa so you. it's it's normal for a conversation or a situation to pivot back and forth between the two it should be normal and i think it's human and that's what makes it transformational that's what makes it a transformational experience for you and i okay. right and so then now now juxtapose that with how so many public meetings go when you think of a superintendent standing in front of a community and sharing how they're going to they're going to deploy their pandemic response plan, for instance. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a conversational open and learning? Not really. It's the superintendent being closed to knowing and telling people this is the answer, and you should you, we're going to do this thing. We're going to do. Yeah, and that's not right. That's the leadership. That's the leadership paradigm that I was talking about. That like I just didn't feel right. It wasn't the right way to do it. But and wouldn't so, you agree that there's times when, like, when the pandemic first struck, that we needed that? No, uh -uh. no, no. I, the first thing I did, well, there were times where yes, we did, we did need some safety and security and so on and so forth. But my first reaction, and this gets to the second part of your question, my first reaction when the pandemic first hit and people were scared and they were they were panicked about what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. My first response was to go on TV and go on our, all of our local media and speak to the entire community all at once and say two words that were really important. I'm sorry. I didn't personally cause the pandemic, but I'm sorry for the pain that's going to cause our community and the pain that's going to cause our mm -hmm. kids. And then to be totally vulnerable. I have never led through a pandemic and I don't know what to do. It's a massively complex problem. There is no one right answer. But... I think that we can work this out together and we can probably figure out the best way to educate our kids. 
And so that gets me into the second part. It's not just vulnerability, but if you as the leader choose to lead with vulnerability, what you're doing is you're opening the door to compassion. And I use that word very, very specifically, compassion. If you break it down, passion means to suffer and compassion means to suffer with. And when we ask other people as leaders, when we stand up and ask other people to be vulnerable, it's, it's disingenuous, right? And radical transparency and vulnerability to me is leading with compassion. It is leading with suffering. So for me, it meant standing up in front of the community and saying, I honestly don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, but I think we can figure it out together. And what I really need to know right now is what do you need from me? Where are you suffering as a community? And, and you know what my community said to me? First and foremost, we ran a digital, um, a digital exchange of sorts, which is crowdsourcing you know, good ideas from the community. The first thing that the community said to me is help us secure food for our kids. That was the number one. It wasn't technology. It wasn't education. It wasn't worried about the pandemic. It's that a number of folks in our community rely on our schools for breakfast and lunch, and in some cases, dinner, and families were worried about food. And so we said, okay, this is priority number one. For the next two weeks, we're going to tackle food. And then we went back to the community and we said, where are you suffering? And then we were starting to talk about online instruction and folks didn't have computers. Great. So in essence, you did a highest value needs yep. and you worked through it. Yep. You took their and number always, one need first, and then you went to the number two and so on like that. Yep. And always connecting with suffering. And so then, for instance, when, when the community said, you know, we, we, we don't have laptops, we need laptops. And the, as a school district, it requires me to be, again, vulnerable and share my suffering, which is with the rest of the community. We don't have laptops, folks. We're, we don't have laptops to hand out to all our kids. What can we do? So a number of uh, folks came together and one of our local, a couple of our local um, businesses around here, and they refurbished a bunch of laptops. Folks donated laptops and they got refurbished and we got those in the hands of kids, hundreds of them, as a matter of fact. And so it was just this constant sharing of suffering and a constant conversation around complex and inherently unknowable. Mm -hmm. That's really how we got through the pandemic. And that's one of the rule, uh, rules or uh, key words in my definition of what an, a high-performing high team is, is sharing of knowledge. So now we're sharing not just of knowledge, but we're sharing the information to be able to pull this all together. Because when we start using everybody and pulling in the resources on so many different levels, it makes us stronger. Absolutely. Uh, without a doubt. And, and I would add to that, that a really high performing team has the ability to pivot. It, the language I use for this, I think everybody would use slightly different language, but I, I call it the difference between department brain and whole brain. Right? So department, again. department brain versus whole brain. Okay. Right? So if we're solving a problem and I need for folks to bring their department brain, what I'm saying is that there's aspects of this problem that we're solving that are complicated. There's just one right way to do it, like the right way to refurbish a computer, for instance. So I need you to put your department brain in. And so that's when we would talk about security protocols and safety protocols and how we're going to hand them out and you know track them and all, that, all the rest of that stuff. All and the logistical so, stuff. Yeah, logistical stuff, right? And mm -hmm. uh, so when I meet with my team, I talk about, okay, we're going to be in department brain here for this little bit. And we're going to talk about this thing. But then we move into whole brain on things that are more complex and again, inherently unknowable. So an, a whole brain conversation was, how do we want to write a, how do we want to write a pandemic response plan? You know, the, the, the director of technology, um, whole brain is still thinking about technology, but not thinking about technology as if there's one right answer to do it. There's not one right way 
to deploy the uh, technology. And so it's taken us years as a team, as a high-performing team. And I, and I think we have an exceptionally high-performing team, mm -hmm. um, but it's taken us years to work through the language that we want to use to get certain work done. And that's really, uh, to tie it all back to the way, where you started the question, the secret to transformational leadership, the secret is the language. You see, we use language in um, complicated and we're comfortable with that language. It's all about hierarchies and it's about power right. and it's about feedback and all this stuff that we do in complicated work. And then we use some of that same language when we're trying to be transformational and shame on us. And as leaders, folks get confused. Um, I'll give you a real clear example. I, I run out of a pandemic response plan in front of my community. And if I say, please give me feedback, right? Feedback tells you who you are. Feedback says, please judge me. I did this thing. I want your feedback. It's all about competence. There's one right way to do it. Please judge me. And folks will do that. And so if I write a pandemic response plan and I'm trying to be transformational and compassionate, and there's not one right answer, if I'm in that space and I say, please give me feedback, what the community hears is, oh, you're using the language of complicated. You want me to judge you? I'm happy to judge you on your pandemic response plan. It stinks. I went online. I found four others that make a lot more sense to me. Why aren't you doing that? if you're so smart, right? But if I don't use the word feedback, I need to have a different piece of language that I use on the, in that other space, in the transformational space. So the language that we are very, very specific about using is feed forward. If feedback tells you who you are, feed forward tells you who you are becoming. And so we say to our community, we're looking for feed forward. At times we go to our community and ask for both. We want feedback on this piece of the plan that we've already written, but we want feed forward on this part that we're working on. And just using the language, the language is the secret, just using the language in the complex, the language in the compassionate, the language in the transformational, and having a different word for that makes all the difference in the world. It's absolutely fascinating how changing one word can change things around. I'm still reminded of, um, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld who said he would spend six hours trying to take a joke from a seven word joke to a six word joke. Yeah. Um, it's the same concept of how do we make sure the language is really what we're looking for and in today's instant gratification we're so quick to say all right just get this out now and not really take the time to think about it yeah absolutely I, you hit it you hit it on the head and so for me this evolution of leadership it was about 10 years into my career that i started to make a list of words that that very clearly to me you know there was a word that was in the transactional space that we would use and there was this other word that wasn't really opposite, but it was just it was just in the transformational space and and um, and communicated the same thing. And from that list, uh, I developed probably close to 40 or 45 words that I still have on my desk today and I'm still working on it today. Mm -hmm. I extracted the, the eight most important to me and said, let's put together a book around this. Let's let's put together a book around these concepts and, and constructs and and start this. Well, can we share some of the, can we share those words with our audience? Sure. I shared one with you just now, the difference between feedback and feed forward. Right. Uh, talked about the difference between being open versus radical transparency. There's a, there's a shift on that. Uh, one of the things I talk about is the, the balance between competent and, and complex in, within the leadership. Um, so those are some of the things that I talk about. I talk about the, I talk about a pivot. It's a personal, it's a personal pivot, but I think it's a really important one from work-life balance to life-work balance. Just what does that so let, mean? Let's, let's dive to that one for a second. 
Because we've heard the term work-life balance for, I, I can remember hearing that one term probably before the turn of the century. You know, back yeah. to, you know, 1998, 99, people were talking about, you know, work-life balance. So what is the difference between work-life and life-work? Well, I think work-life, the, the, the short version is whatever we put first, we tend to prioritize, right? And if you put work first in your life, then you fit your life in around work as best you can. And the nature of leadership is that the, the, the more you get into it, the more work you do, there's more work there is. Um, and it's pretty easy to very quickly find yourself working nonstop and have um, zero time for life. And so if you pivot away from work life to life work, then you say that life is most important. And as a leader, you start to lead differently. And it gets back to this notion of compassion and suffering and transformation. Like if I want to be in a transformational space with my, with my people, I made this decision um, gosh, probably eight years ago, maybe, maybe 10 years ago as a leader, I made a decision that uh, I'm not going to tell folks what to do in this space, but that I was not going to email, text, or call before eight o'clock in the morning or after five o'clock at night, ever. Just wasn't going to do it. And I didn't make it a rule. I didn't make it a policy. I just said, look, I my expectation of myself is if it's an emergency, then yes, absolutely. But if it's not a full on emergency, then I need to prioritize people's lives. And the, an amazing thing happened. I didn't have to say anything throughout the organization, but this cascades through yep. the organization. Yeah. And it goes and, back to do as I do, not as I say type thing. And you are actually right. living and setting the example. That's exactly right. And, and I'll, give an, I'll give another example too, because it's, a, it's another one of these language pivots that I talk about in the book. And it's a really important one to me as it connects to work life and, and life work is uh, I think far too many leaders go into a space and they say to their subordinates, um, this is what I want from you. This is what I want from you right now. And again, back to this notion of power and hierarchy and competence. If I want this from you, then I'm telling you I want this thing and I'm gonna judge you on it. And it's really important. And I, I made this decision that with my people to the greatest extent possible, I'm not going to do that because they know what I want from them, number one. And number two, it sort of assumes that they don't want to do the best work of their life. I, and, and I realized that as the, you know, as the CEO, when, when somebody says to me, this is what I want from you, it's kind of insulting. Like, like I, I want to do the best work of my life. So just, let's just start there. Let's assume that. And so I actually made the commitment when I came here to Victoria, I made the commitment. I told the, the, the board before they hired me, I said, look, I'm not going to spend any time at all talking to my cabinet about what I want from them. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. And I'm going to save myself all kinds of time, all kinds of time in my day and in my week. But I'm going to fill that time with something else. I'm going to focus on what I want for them. Right. Small change. Mm -hmm. Big change. It's a definite move from more of an autocratic leader to more of a participative leader. Absolutely. Yeah. And if I want for my team to feel like they're working on the best team they've ever worked with, if I want for them to feel like they have an authentic um, and empowering experience, if I want for them to feel like they're really making a difference in kids' lives, then I focus on something different, right? I focus as the leader on something different for them. And that makes all the difference in the world. And that changes it from just you know, work to like we're living this dream together. Yeah. It's so important to, you're tapping into a lot of Maslow at that point as well. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, you're, sure. you're giving them a lot of the early stuff, the security, the blankets, the sense of belonging, but you're also getting up there to more of the self-esteem issues and getting them to realize, hey, they're pretty good people. You're not putting them down by telling them what you want. That's right. What you're going to do with. And I love That's the correct. words with often as opposed to two and four things like that. So I use the word with quite frequently. Well, and and that's a great that's a great way to put it. I think it, it speaks the same it speaks the same language. And what that does is that ties together, um, and is part of the reason why I was just so honored to be a part of this this podcast because it ties together what you talk about with teamwork, uh, leadership, and culture. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, this is like this is culture with a capital C. Like this is the big Absolutely. stuff. Yeah, this is yeah. the stuff that matters. This is the stuff that that can do anything. So let's talk about this. I, I picked up a lot in what you just said in the last five, seven minutes about what you've done in the school district and the language you've used. Let's talk about how we can actually take that language from a school district, educational background, something that most people think is very different from the business world, and it's really not. What are some things that leaders can do in for-profit business or even in nonprofit organizations or in federal, local, and state government agencies? What are things that leaders can do and pull from what you've just talked about? Well, I think first and foremost, and, and, and I appreciate this question, I've had a chance to talk to some folks outside of education, some leaders, and um, they, they do find it valuable. And I think one of the, the biggest points of, of entry into that conversation is recognizing that they face the same thing that I do in that there's some of their work that is complicated and some of their work that is complex. And just making that mental distinction about is, is this thing that I'm facing complicated? There's only one right way to do it. And if so, embracing the language of complicated, embracing the language of, of power structures and embracing things like hierarchy. One of the pivots that I make in the book is the pivot from hierarchy to network, right? If the work that the folks in private are looking at is complicated, then they need hierarchies to get that work done. But if the work that they're looking at doing is complex and inherently unknowable, they actually need networks to get that work done. And if you use the language of hierarchies, when you mean to be using the language of networks, you're confusing your employees, you're confusing the business. Um, and I think that works both on the private sector and in the public sector. Um, as, a, as an important uh, point of distinction. Another, another example, and this isn't, you wouldn't find this in the book necessarily, but it's part of the, the overall framework, which I you know, routinely share when I, when I, when I you know, speak to folks or, or get the opportunity to chat with them, is um, when you're going out to like a product and you're revisiting a product, are you going into it to be transactional or are you going into it to be transformational? So the, the, it could be anything that you're thinking about, but if you're thinking transactional, then really what you're trying to do is substantiate what you believe to be true. Like, I think that this particular way of doing things is, is the right way to do things. And so I'm going to look into it. But basically, I just want to substantiate what I believe to be true. If you're in the transformational space, you're not really substantiating. You're speculating. You're saying, I don't, I don't actually know if this is the right product at this, in this particular time. Or I don't know if this is the right way to make, make a sale in this okay. particular environment. And so then you're speculating, but if you speak the language of substantiating, this is how we've always sold, this is how we've always done it, um, you're, 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 setting out, you're setting out for failure. You're, you're not in the transformational space as a leader. Yeah. 
So let's look at it from this situation. Let's, and we're going to tie this into your position as superintendent, but let's, we could also put this into where it's not just a superintendent, but it could be a senior vice president. And they've got a manager of a frontline person, or in your case, maybe a teacher inside of a school or a principal inside of a school in your case, who is more transactional versus transformational. What are some things that you might use to coach that person to be, move them to become more transformational from being transactional? Well, I think it's, I think you have to start by looking at yourself first, right? Like as mm -hmm. the leader, you have to, you have to start by looking at yourself. And typically what I think you'd find is that um, a lot of leaders are, um, to put it very bluntly, and this is another framework language that I use, they're, 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 they're putting on their employee, they're putting on their subordinate, um, informed acquiescence, right? Like, okay. I just want you to do this thing, you have to know how to do it. And I'm asking you to agree with me that this is how you're going to do it, right? Versus what we actually want in the transformational space is self governance. That's what we actually want. Um, it's the movement from status quo. This is how we've always done it to growth. This is mm -hmm. you're becoming as a person. Um, what the, what the leader will find the quick way to know whether or not you're on the right track with this or not, there's a, there's a really easy test on this. It's if things are not going well and you're having this conversation, if you feel like you're getting excuses for things that are not going well, then you're in the transactional space. You're not actually in the growth and development space. Um, you've you've fallen prey to this judgment hierarchy, um, mm -hmm. in this judgment and hierarchy space. And uh, so opposite of excuses is explanations. When you start getting explanations over excuses, then you're actually in that compassionate space. How do you define the difference? I think it's it's as much of a feeling as anything. But an okay. excuse is an excuse is simply it didn't it didn't happen. And, and this is the reason why. Whereas an explanation is here's where I'll go back to suffering. Here's where I'm suffering and why. I think okay. if you can hear, if you can find that I, suffering, if you can tap into that suffering, you're no longer into an excuse. You're, you're more into an explanation. Awesome. And that makes so much sense because there's so many places today where the senior level leaders are on the right target, making things more transformational, but they've got individual leaders that are not necessarily ready yet don't understand the transformational and consequently the people that are being suffered and damaged the most are those even below that because they can't be lifted and they see things up here and they just see this massive gap if you will it's so. beautiful and and you're tapping into my own suffering as as we speak um <laughs> i actually i actually write a little bit about this in the book that there's that what we the culture bit of it is you know what we put into the language we use becomes our practice and our practice ultimately becomes our policy and then our policy dictates the organization that we that we live in it becomes our culture for decades and decades and decades we've built policies around a very transactional style of leadership and so as a transformational leader as a compassionate leader i still to this day and i've been doing this for almost two decades as a superintendent i still to this day run into what you just described this, this cascading nature of leadership, and it becomes 
my perception is it becomes less transformational the closer and closer and closer we get to the classroom. Now, have we made progress? Sure. Are we where, where I want to be? No. And I don't think you ever get there entirely, but, but schools, corporations, I think it's the same. We've built policies and structures so much around transactional leadership that it will take us years, if not decades, to work our way out of it. And as the great, one of my mentors used to use the expression, Zig Ziglar used to say, another Texas guy, by the way, uh, used to always say, inch by inch, things are a cinch. Try it by the mile. It will be a trial. Yes. And so if we're trying to do things slowly, we can start to make differences and move mountains. And that's the power in that. That is absolutely the power in it. And that was really the whole, that was really my whole goal in writing this book was to just move the conversation forward one inch. If Mm -hmm. just one inch people start talking about the type of language that we use in these different, in these different spaces, Mm -hmm. then to me, this has been um, worth all the effort and and a total slam dunk. So in the book, I think you've talked also about compassionate leadership and competent leadership. So where, how's that, how do those differ? Because we talked about yeah. complex and compa- you know, those types of, yeah. but where does competency come in? So competency is, um, and, and, and almost everything that falls in the transactional space, competency included, is all about being fragile, right? You're either, you think about competency, whoever's listening to this, I know you have a lot of folks who are non-educators who listen to this as well. Mm-hmm. Anytime you, you're asked to be competent about something, your ability to make a sale, your ability to turn in um, finance reports, solve an it IT problem, solve an IT problem, you name it. Um, you, you can be bad and get better and maybe you become good or you could be good. And over time, maybe you you don't stay current. You don't stay up on the trends and you become and you become bad. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. It doesn't matter. Forget about good and bad for a minute and just recognize that in either in, 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 in any part of that spectrum, you're fragile. Yeah, if you're good and you're what? You're fragile. Okay. Fragile. Meaning if you're good, you could become bad. That makes you fragile. If you're bad, you could become irrelevant. You're still fragile. You're fragile whenever you're thinking about good or bad. And that's the whole notion of competence. And I find this fascinating because that paradigm exists only because we're, we're using judgment. Good or bad is a judgment word. And if you're using judgment around competence, which you have to do, like the, for the things that have one right answer, there's only one right way to do it. So that competency is really important. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but the judgment makes you fragile. But in the world of complex and compassionate, competent, compassionate, you're not fragile anymore. You're just not fragile. When I share my suffering with you and you share your suffering with me and we connect over suffering, I'm no longer fragile because this moment of sharing, you and I have a common and collective goal, especially if you care about me as a person. Now, if you're out to hurt me, if you're out to, you know, somehow, well, that's totally different. That's, and then, that's and an then, entirely different realm. It's a totally different conversation, but I'm mm-hmm. two people who genuinely want to solve a problem that's a really hard problem to solve. If we're compassionate with one another, we're not worried about competence. I don't, I don't care if you're doing a good or bad job. You're, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with me and you're helping to solve a problem. Yeah. And, and when you do that, so, so as an example, as, a, as an example from my leadership, which is in schools, 
one of the things that we did with the pandemic response plan, since I talked about that uh, with you already, one of the first things we did is we led with our suffering, we led with vulnerability, and we said, we're going to be compassionate. And so we did not go to our community and say, hey, we've got this pandemic response plan that our curriculum director wrote. And we think it's really great. And we'd, we'd like your feedback on it. We went to the community first, the community being our, our teachers, and said, gosh, we're looking for really great ideas. What do you think we should do when it comes to the pandemic response plan? We had about 700 teachers on a Zoom, 700 teachers on a Zoom, and we used a crowdsourcing software to crowdsource the best ideas from those 700 teachers. And because we feel like the people who are gonna be most impacted by the problem should have the greatest voice in the solution. And so we wrote the first iteration of the pandemic response plan with those 700 teachers. And the very next thing we do, we went to our middle school and high school kids. We got about 500 kids on a Zoom. Maybe not a great idea. The first onset of the pandemic is to put them all in the same space. But we eventually got everything moving in the right direction. And we said to the kids, this is what your teachers wrote. What thoughts and questions do you have? How can we make this better? And the kids gave us all kinds of opportunities to make it better. And then the last group that we went to was the parents. And we said, this is what the teachers wrote and the kids responded to. What thoughts and questions do you have? And how can we make this better? So that, that's very interesting. You went teachers, students, parents. Yeah. As opposed to parents, teachers, students, or parents, students, teachers. Any the particular people, reason you went that direction? Absolutely. The people most impacted by the decision should have the greatest voice in that decision. And we felt like the people who are going to be most impacted by this decision, whatever it looked like, were going to be our teachers. Because we were faced with this back at the onset of the pandemic, this notion of moving from brick to click, for lack of a better way to put it. And uh, what is that going to mean for teachers' day-to-day -day lives and how they teach and, and so on and so forth. And then uh, number two, to students, because we really wanted to have this something for the students to reflect, to reflect on. And what happened, I mean, through, through all of that, what we developed through this transformational culture and the culture, again, with a capital C, what happens is when we, when we bring everybody together around this common problem, they're less, they're less inclined to judge. We're not saying judge my competency on writing a pandemic response plan because we're all writing it together. So instead of competency, what okay. we get is compassion and we get ownership. And then, so that's a different, it's a different word, right? I don't have to. Now with, you're going to get the ownership with that. You're going to get a better buy-in from everybody. Yep. Well, I don't even need to worry about buy-in because buy-in assumes that I have a plan that I need to go out and sell to people. Right. Don't forget about it. They actually helped write it in the first place. So buy-in and engagement, it just disappears. It does it's no longer part of the language. It's not the, part of the, the language. language structure. It's, just, it's a natural byproduct. That's right. It's ownership. Yeah. So let's talk about the teams once you for example if we want to go back with the pandemic response plan when you go to roll something out i want to make a bold assumption that it did not work perfectly the first time you rolled it out no of course <laughs> how did you go about tweaking it so in other words how could you work with the team then in this case your teachers primarily how could you work with them so that they were more effective in this response got better and it wasn't going back to being a transactional thing or a complicated thing but still focusing on the complex outstanding question so what what it what it requires is for the leadership team and the, and the leader to specifically step back on a regular basis and continue to ask the question where are you suffering what's not working and so we would ask you know when we saw pockets of our kids in and some of our schools for instance 
that were not doing as well as others, we were immediately on top of that school asking, where are you suffering and why and how can we help? And just asking that question over and over and over again, um, we, we did a lot on we, we, basically two platforms, one being Zoom or, or Teams. Uh, so bringing groups of people around focus groups or you know whoever wanted to be a participant in that. Mm -hmm. And the second one was through this crowdsourcing software, which a number of school districts use. And I think some businesses, it's actually moved into the corporate space as well. It's called Thought Exchange. And um, we ran a, a number of exchanges, which is a, it's a crowdsourcing platform. So we could pitch a question out to our community and somebody could be sitting at home in their living room and say, yeah, I have an idea. This is what you ought to be doing. Great. And what happens is everybody in the entire community can read each other's thoughts and they basically vote on them. They give them five stars or one star. And so the, the best thoughts tend to rise to the top and it's all anonymous. We don't care who has the best thoughts. We just want to hear the best thoughts. So that was the question I had. This was all total anonymity. Yep. Yeah. And when you do focus groups, you know, when you actually bring people together, the anonymity isn't isn't possible. But but our our thinking is we actually don't care. And now that we're back in person, of course, we'll do anything. We'll do in-person meetings. We'll do virtual meetings. We'll do exchanges. We still do run exchanges. We're just constantly talking to our community nonstop about, you know, here's this complex issue that we're facing. How can you help? What, what do you think? One last question to kind of go, go through here, because I could keep going on this for a long time. This is just fascinating to me on so many different levels. But when we're looking at building the team, what's, what's something you would say right now if you are the senior vice president, CEO of an organization, uh, division head, whatever, because again, we have so many different types of folks listening. What's one thing you would give a leader today that he or she could do to really ensure that their team is being effective. And then let's tie that into where do you want your legacy? Wow. What's one thing that they could do to make sure that their team is being effective? I think, um, I think the first thing I would say is connect to the heart. If you're not connected to the heart of everybody on your senior leadership team, then you're not connected. Um, so because connect directly to the heart with your immediate direct reports. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, and this is not the traditional leadership paradigm does not, does not allow for this in any way, shape or form. Uh, but I, I'm just convinced that it's, it's this notion of putting life first and you connect to a person. And when you connect to a person on the heart level, it, an open heart is the fastest way to an, an open mind, right? Um, because people know that you care and, and, and the, everything changes in that instant. Um, so I would say, start there. If you don't know your people at the heart level, you don't know your people. Right. Um, so where do you see yourself? What legacy do you want to leave? Assuming at some point in time, you will retire. <laughs> um, the legacy that I want to leave, I, you know, they say, they say that, that everybody dies two deaths. You, you die the first death when, uh, when your body leaves this earth and you, and you die the second death when the people you know um, no longer tell your stories. I guess my legacy is this, I hope it's the story of leadership. You know, there's this, there's this thing that happens in this space and um, as a leader at any level, and I mean, teacher, leader, uh, principal, superintendent, you know, you, you leave this indelible impact on lives. If you're doing it right, you leave an indelible impact 
And it's not every day with every person, um, but if you've if you've left that indelible impact and and somebody tells the story of your leadership, that's a pretty good legacy. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's the power. When we get there and people start to really use the things we talk about. Yeah, that's the power in that. If sure. people want to pick up your book, the name of your book again is <laughs> The Secret to Transformational Leadership. And they can pick that up Amazon or wherever. Everywhere. Audible, you name it. Ooh, even on Audible. I like those. All right. Uh, if they want to reach out to you, if they have questions or something like that, are you reachable? Uh, totally. Probably the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Given what's okay. going on right now with uh, with Twitter, I have uh, suspended my active uh, in- engagement with Twitter for the for the foreseeable future. But yep. uh, I'm definitely on LinkedIn. And uh, folks can also go to our website, transformational leadership secret dot com. Transformational leadership secret secret. Okay. Dot com. And there, if you, if you, if you go to that website, you can get the book, you can get, uh, we have a, a newsletter that we send out and the whole bit, you'll get connected to everything, everything okay. that we're doing. Awesome. I did. I, I said last question a while ago, I got one more. Okay. What is your biggest leadership challenge and team challenge you're facing today? Biggest leadership and team challenge that I'm facing today is the same biggest leadership team challenge that I faced when I first started almost 20 years ago with my first team. It is constantly um, focusing and refocusing on bringing everyone together around that common vision. I think the minute that a leader looks away from that and common purpose, common vision, uh, connected to whatever it is that we're, that we're trying to do, uh, the minute that the leader looks away from that, they've, they've, lost, they've lost their team and they've lost their focus. And they've lost the sight of the horizon of their true north. That's right. That's right. Dr. Shepard, thank you so much for everything today. Thanks for your time. Uh, Time is one of the most valuable commodities we all have, and I appreciate the time you were able to give us here today. Folks, reach out to Dr. Quinton Shepard. That's Q-U-I-N-T-I-N, Quinton Shepard, out of Victoria, Texas. Um, Look forward to maybe getting you back on here in a while and seeing how things are shaping up down there in your new district. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you very much. Folks, just remember, once a week with the Teamwork Advantage, you get ideas that you can start to use right away. And Dr. Shepard has definitely shared those with us today. Remember, once a week, it's all it takes, about 45 minutes. And always remember, until next week, don't ever have a good day. A good day is just being average. When you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, we know you're not average. So go out to make today excellent and exceptional. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.